Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, it is 2024. I know you logged into this podcast just to find out that crucial bit of information, but there it is, 2024, the first democracy sausage for the year. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University, Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics, and with me is... Dr. Maria Tuflaga. Indeed, yeah. also from the School of Politics and International Relations, political scientist and uh, regular uh, democracy sausage partner and uh, perhaps not going to be completely as regular this year as uh, has been the case in the past. Do you want to speak yes, to that? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, you know, fellow sausage listeners, um, if I'm going to call you that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I have exciting news. I'm I'm going to go on parental leave again. I'm going to have another child. With child, I think. That's, yes, that's right. Exactly. What, what is your date of confinement? That's what oh, I used to well, say. Well, <laughs> impending, Mark, impending. Um, yes, but I will, I will probably be around for the next couple of episodes and then I will, and then be busy on other things. That's right. I'll be yeah. I'll be working twenty four hours a day without leave. Um, <laughs> so I'll be busy. Yeah. I'll, I might write to Tony Work about a uh, Burke about my workplace uh, rights and conditions. Yeah. Um, no, yeah good no. luck with that. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that, that is exciting uh, news for you, and um, uh, you know, big life change. Yes. And but I think. Subject to you know you wanting to and all that, uh, there's there's a yes, possibility I'll, I'll, that I will make as, as we, I will make appearances yes. like last time. Yes, excellent, that's right, excellent. That's right. Well, that will be always good, um, always better with you here. Um, so look, it is good to be back. It's been a um, an interesting time in the world, a very bad time actually. I think let's be frank. Yes, um, a lot of war, a lot of instability. We know 2024 is a year of a lot of elections as well, but I think it's also true to say that that we shouldn't uh, be deluded into thinking that this is a you know high watermark or a festival of democracy in fact democracies feel like they're pretty much under siege around the place uh, not not every democracy but uh, some of them are dem- democratic or these are you know they they're not There's democracies just because they're having elections. in the system yeah yeah that's right so um it is a, it is a difficult time and i i heard um we might come to this a bit later but i heard uh, Tobias Elwood a Tory MP from from Britain, who one of the uh, more cerebral ones, uh, who was um, saying that he feels this, there's a lot about this that is very similar to 1937 in terms of rising authoritarianism, and and you know democracies under pressure, economies under pressure, a lot of instability, and things happening on on potentially on multiple fronts. We might come to that. We're going to talk about a few of these things today, just you and me. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about. Stage three tax cuts, which has been the big domestic story at the start of the political year, the so-called broken promise. We'll, we'll touch on uh, on Israel, Gaza, Hamas, that that you know that hideous human tragedy unfolding since October seven last year, uh, and we'll we'll just uh, touch on some of the dimensions of that, and we'll talk about Nemesis, Nemesis, yes, Nemesis, yes, Mark Willis's um, extraordinary journalistic foray into. The three different prime ministerships that made up the last coalition run of governments between 2013 and 2022. Um, we'll come to that as well because we both uh, separately watched that uh, first episode of that last night as That's we record right. this. And, um, it, it, you know, I had a few people sending me, um, sending me, uh, what is the what is the right term, memes, I suppose, of, uh, you know, huge 
popcorn bags and so forth to eat, <laughs> I guess political tragics, we're going to always enjoy the candor of um, of, a, of a thing like that. Uh, yeah, I think any political junkie is going to enjoy viscera, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So look, let's let's just kick off with with the stage three stuff. That being yep. the, the the domestic thing, because I'm keen to hear your thoughts, Maria, about how significant you think this is. That the the fact of the broken promise has it reframed politics in the negative for the prime minister. The government's been under a fair bit of pressure. Had a had a sort of a messy end to the year. The voice not getting up was also not a high. Not not a plus for the prime minister personally or for the government. Um, the economy has been incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, cost of living crisis, as we, we we hear it termed, and I think for many people that's actually right. And uh, the government's acted, but it's had to break a promise that it gave quite solemnly up to the last election and since. Yeah, I I mean I look I think it's in some ways a little bit early to definitively say. But I, I do think this is an important turning point for the government and I, I'm inclined to view it in um, a more positive light. Like to me, this seems like the government taking control of its destiny, taking control of the agenda and setting itself up for its re-election set, set of arguments, right, that it'll make for its re-election. I, I've, I found some of the discussion around promise breaking really quite interesting in the in the press um shallow even <laughs> yeah yeah i mean like it's 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 not that um, promises are really important but i i always find this discussion around promises well it's very zero sum but they're often these conversations are often held outside of of context and in essence you know, a breach of faith is is a very important thing and not to be undertaken lightly. But the flip side of that is essentially governments say exactly what they're going to do and election time and then no matter what happens, they're going to stick with that. And if your boss was like that or your mum or dad did that when you were a kid, didn't like switch or, or or respond to circumstances despite, you know, like floodwaters rising or some kind of disaster, like you would say they were incompetent, negligent, you, you know what I mean? Like mm. so I think I think that's that's an important part of this conversation. I also think this is structurally quite a different promise to a lot of the the ones that might come to mind, right? One, we all know that this is not Labor's policy, not Labor's preferred policy like the original stage three tax cuts, we all know that they were against them, but they, you know, voted for them for cynical political reasons, right? Or for practical political reasons, depending on your point of view. I, I think the electorate kind of understood that and understands that. I, I also think that it's this promise is not, I don't think it blindsides the electorate like the carbon tax promise or the or the Abbott 2020 20, 14 budget, right, which was an absolute shock. And this promise isn't like that. I think everyone kind of knows that there are tax cuts called the stage three tax cuts and that there are people who think they might be inflationary or might be unequal or might be problematic. It's probably not clear to that many voters that the sort of profundity of them in changing the tax mix and flattening the tax base and and the, the the profound implication that actually has for taking out that whole thirty seven cent yeah, and uh, the, in the dollar bracket yeah and the progressive pro, the pro, I can't progressivity say the word, thank you of the Australian tax system and how that links to the Australian way of life and what we expect and in some ways I actually think this tax cut gives Labor like a whole bunch of arguments that are favourable to them. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is a more equitable redistribution tick. That's a labour message. It, it's giving money to the entire income scale so that anyone who opposes it is taking money away from people, um, particularly at the lower end during a cost of living crisis. That's, a, that's actually a difficult argument to mount. The people that are losing money are in the top – Five percent of earners, or top ten percent of earners, I've actually—they're not forgotten. losing money anyway. Well, no, they're just not. They're just—they're foregoing. They're foregoing the full windfall they were going to get. Right. So, so let's so, be clear about yeah. this: the people who are on two hundred thousand dollars a year and above, we're going to get a tax cut of nine thousand and seventy-five dollars, and now they're going to get a tax cut of four and a half grand, roughly thereabouts. Exactly. Right? Now, four and a half grand for the average person 
is a very healthy wedge and still a bigger wedge than anyone else is going to get when these tax cuts are delivered from July. And I think you make some very good points there. For example, or you raise some very good points. For example, why was this tax cut for the wealthy, this stage three, delayed for so long? Why did the previous government set it up so that Labor could not split the package, stages two and three, stages one, two and three, apart? You remember the debate back in 2019? This is a package, you have to vote for the whole thing. And that was, going back to your point about political practicalities, that was the, the, the trap that Labor was in. They were invited at that moment to support the whole package, including generous tax cuts for the well-off in 2024, which was you know three and a half years away, or, or vote against tax relief for low- and middle-income earners right now. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was diabolical, really, and Labor, in the end, tried to amend it um, when they couldn't. Um, they instructed their senators to wave it through. So obviously Labor didn't have the numbers in the lower house or it would have been the government. Um, but in the Senate, uh, Labor could have uh, caused you know difficulties, but in the end chose not to. Uh, now we find this trap, in a way, is reversed. And I, I, going back to your point about the coverage, I was quite surprised how much focus there was on the broken promise as distinct from the fact that 84% of taxpayers are going to be better off as a result of this. As you say, people right up and down the tax scale get a tax cut. Um, and if you're, if you're well off, it's quite a significant amount. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing uh, in itself that it's still happening. But that by cutting that in half at the top end, it is able to be distributed down lower. And so you get people uh, close to average weekly earnings who are getting roughly a doubling of the tax relief that they were going to get under the previous stage three. So there's a lot of people who are actually going to get more That's right. than they were going to get under stage three. And no one is going to end up paying more tax than they were. It's just that if they're wealthier, they won't. And going back to this sort of political trap point, Peter Dutton and the, and, the, and the coverage of it, Peter Dutton, courtesy of some messaging from Susan Lee and others, at one stage early on seemed to be suggesting, or at least the Dutton's party was suggesting, that they might commit to rolling this back if they are successful at the election next year. They quickly walked back from that. But it seems to me the more threshold, much more th- important threshold question is, and you were sort of touching on this, I think, what are they going to do in the short term? Are they going to vote against? I mean, let's think about. I was going to say, are they going to vote against giving a tax cut to low and middle income earners? Because that is the same dilemma they put Labor in in 2019. And they are now going to be in that themselves. And Dutton, as we've discussed on this podcast before, is very much about speaking to middle Australia and going for, you know, the kind of blue collar base of Labor outside the cities, in the suburbs, and particularly the outer suburbs and regions of Australia. That's what he thinks is going to be his path back. That's why he's not exercising much uh, political capital trying to get those teal seats back. He's, he's, you know, he's going for that kind of much more kind of Trump red wall approach uh, uh, that, um, that we've seen uh, you know, the, the, the Americans and the, and the uh, British conservatives undertake. That's the way he's going about it. Now, is he going to tell all of those people, yeah, vote for me, vote for me, but I don't believe you should get a tax cut because I think these people... Um, you know, who drive around in Teslas, they can, they can have a tax cut. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I thought some of his um, rhetoric around, you know, the, the Prime Minister is terminal, we need a new election was, was hyperbolic. I mean, like, to say the least. But, you know, he's an opposition leader. That's, that's kind of like half the job, right? Just trying, trying sort of silly things on. But I mean, you know, like, I think you're, you're right that there's sort of two points here. Like, one is like, let's inject some facts into this. You know, the, the median income, that's the middle, right? The middle income in this country is $67,000, right? You know, uh, David Littleproud was arguing against the changes to the stage three tax cuts the other day by saying that $190,000 is not a lot of money, right? But it's more than double the median income. If you're on full-time wages, the median income is around $100,000. So still, you know, we're talking like basically half of what is sort of on on offer here. And so when you think about it in those terms, there's a lot of people who are about to get 
like a windfall that they weren't anticipating. And, and this is the Nats. I mean, this is the weatherboard and iron, or as many people thought Barnaby was saying a few years ago, weatherboard nine. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the weatherboard nine Nats, right? The, yeah. A party that is that represents rural and regional Australia. And, and outside of a few FIFO workers, how many of their constituents are making 200 well, plus K a year? Well, that's right. I mean, I mean, the Nats actually on average represent the, some of the poorest electorates yeah. in the country. Yeah. Um, but it, what it does point to is, I suppose, like a, the risk is around the framing. Now, the government has a lot of advantages because they're the government. They get to set the agenda. They get to basically frame the legislative debate. And the opposition is essentially hoping to do a repeat of Julia Gillard's carbon tax, you know, to sort of say like, well, this is, this is a new thing. This has come out of the blue. This is a broken promise. I, I, as I sort of said earlier, like I structurally just don't think this this debate is like that. I think it's much more like John Howard's never ever GST. Um, you know, I have a good reason to break this promise, and I'm about to put my neck on the line to hmm. to prosecute it. Um, which, which to is, be fair, he did went to an election. Exactly, yeah. he did, and he almost lost. Yeah. Um, you know, and Albanese is sort of trying to move down that path. I mean, what was kind of important about the difference between Rudd's ETS and Julia Gillard's carbon tax is that no one was talking about a carbon tax before she brought that up as an alternative. We were talking about a market-based emissions trading scheme, basically in in many ways leaving consumers um, or using different instruments to achieve a goal. And so in that sense- Although, to be fair, Abbott Abbott was talking about a carbon tax because as far as he was concerned, everything could be reduced to to, a tax, tax, right? And it it did work for him. Well, that's true. That's true. So this is why when Julia Gillard did do that deal with the crossbench and with the Greens, you know, to to form government and uh, quickly thereafter emerged this this carbon price, which she, you know, reasonably – uh, I think at the same time, acknowledged that was tantamount to a tax um, in a surfeit of honesty at that moment, but it uh, perhaps was too honest. But either yes. way, Albert was going to call it a tax anyway, and you know, henceforth it became, you know, this this thing, and you know, they That's were right, able to yeah. they were able to juxtapose it against her quote prior to the election that we know carbon tax under the government I lead and you know we sort of saw that whole that whole thing play out in that very um, concussive way yeah no that's that's actually a, that's a very good um, contextual sort of point and I suppose if we boil it down to nuts and bolts um, it's easy for people to believe or they literally were gonna lose money same with the cuts in the 2014 budget like people were going to be losing money in mm. the form of services in this case, most workers, because I think it's I think only the top five percent earn over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, are going to get money. Yeah, so, it's a very small proportion of the workforce that's actually in this top bracket, and and a good many of those, it, it seems, if 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 we are to take what the Teal MPs are saying, or not all of them, but I don't want to speak for all of them, but I think Zoe Daniels made the point, and and a couple of others as well have actually had feedback from their in their constituent offices from people who are about to get less of a tax cut than they were going to get, who are saying they understand this is what needs to happen because people down the income scale are struggling so hard to meet mortgage costs and everything else. So even some of the people who are going to get it are not necessarily hot under the collar about it. Yeah, well, this also matches some um, findings in the AES uh, in which there was a cohort of wealthier people who were prepared to sort of cop, I suppose, the larger agenda of Bill Shorten, for example. So, you know, the, that community is there. There'll obviously be a cohort of people who might have voted teal, who are now going to be really angry at the teals because they're going to lose their tax cut, and they might vote accordingly. Well, we don't, we know. don't know what the teals are going to do. They, well, they, right. they may that's vote right. against it. They don't have the numbers in the lower house, and it's not really going to matter. Um, uh, no, you know, no. If I was advising them, I'd be, I'd be, you know, if, I, if I'm honest, I'd be inclined to be thinking, well, you, you listen to your electors because if you don't, you won't be there after. Yes, but I do think it's actually really important for Labor to prosecute the case. Like, I don't think in today's um, media environment, it's actually sufficient to announce this once. Like they they need to hit people over the head with like, well, you know, you earn $67,000, you're going to get this much money under Dutton, this much money under Albanese, you know. And then that needs to be crystal clear. I don't think that you can actually rely on 
people to work that out for themselves at this sort of juncture of something that is so important because otherwise if they don't do that, then it will it'll be a broken promise and people might get more money and have no idea that they have. Yeah, you know? yeah. That said, the political community, I think broadly speaking, has been of the view for some time and I, I don't think this is a completely empty point. I think there's some substance to this that – that, that breaking promises is costly, particularly when they are seen to be very personal promises. Albanese was asked about this a lot because it didn't appear to be a Labor policy. It appeared to be, a, well, it was a policy that Labor had tried to amend and couldn't, um, that it was going to be presiding over these very generous tax cuts for the wealthy at a time when the economy was uh, such a hard place for many people to live in and why was the Labor government doing this? And... He doggedly stuck to the story that the Labor was going to deliver it and uh, to drive the point home, he had said before the election and since, I will deliver it, my word is my bond. Now, they're pretty personal words and I think for all the reasons that you've said and for all the reasons of the substance of, of, of what Labor has done, I think the policy is better. I think many economists think so. The policy change that the government has, has dialed up is fairer and better um, and I think it it therefore goes a long way towards selling itself. But that doesn't mean there won't be some sort of personal cost for the PM, and I think the PM knew that. He sells, he, he's told his troops that, okay, we're in a fight now to defend this, but at least it's a fight about something we believe in rather than being in a fight defending the previous government's ratchet policy on this. We're going to be able to defend this policy, which is our our adjustment of it to make it fairer, and at least we can do that with, you know, with um, with a free hand, as it were, you know, yeah. with a clear conscience. Yeah, absolutely, and it sort of goes to, my, to the, the, what I was trying to articulate around the idea of framing. And I guess the one final point I would make is, if we actually look at our most long-lived prime ministers and and actually premiers who were who won multiple terms in office, they all broke promises. They all showed up and said. We've been listening to you or, you know, Peter Beattie, for example, Michael mm. Rand, John mm. Howard. You know, we're listening, we're changing course. And I think that is reflected in how Albanese has chosen to frame this. You know, I guess the It's gonna test his skills. That's isn't it? right, that's right. Like I, I just I just don't think Labor can take the the quote unquote logic of the change for granted. Like I think they are in a fight and they actually really need to work hard to, to win it. Yeah, to explain it and, and, yeah. and to justify it on, on on the basis of it being superior policy yeah. uh, which delivers for more Australians. I mean, the fact that there are so many winners That's right. I think is, is, is a great help. It, but it is an easy argument to make, I think, on many levels, but they actually have to make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Let's take a quick break and come back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, um, we won't talk too much more about tax because I think we've covered that pretty well. Uh, we'll. We'll see where that goes. It's going to be interesting when Parliament resumes next week as we record this because I think it'll be obviously a, a pretty big topic. The other big topic, that, as I flagged before, one of the very big topics that's been dominating everything, of course, has been the the ongoing war in um, in Gaza, war on Gaza, war on Hamas in Gaza uh, by Israel. Uh, it's It's unearthed a whole lot of really oh yeah a tense geopolitical yeah really uh, really appalling things i mean yeah. but also it's it's 
been quite interesting watching the positioning of various countries, our own included, but the US, the UK, political leaders, European leaders, um, where they stand on this. It's uh, It's been really quite fascinating and in a, in a sense, I suppose you'd also say the impotence of these uh, of things like the UN and 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 so forth because of the way it's set up. Uh, you know, just sort of a lot of a lot of words spoken, but not much influence on it. Yes, I mean, um, just to pick up your your point about the UN before I ask, um, I guess you a question about it um, is it sort of sort of goes to show actually that our sort of global security institutions haven't really renewed. And haven't updated to a sort of a world that's, you know, 70, 80 years on from 1945 mm. and kind of reflects the fact that it's been unable to be a powerful actor like it might have been um, in the past. And I think this conflict has really kind of shown up actually how the sort of, I suppose, overarching narrative around this conflict has been much more contested, even like even in the Western media, right, or, you know, where we would have sort of, you know, 20 years ago would have had far less disagreement mm. in public amongst political um, elites, even though those debates would have been going on at the community level. And, and I think that is has been a shock to um, a lot of people. But I suppose, Mark, like, I mean, there is talk of this ceasefire but of, um, and a hostage deal, but we've just had this attack on this US base mm. and I believe there have been some casualties or some deaths actually. Yeah, I three mean, deaths, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean... I suppose. Where do you? How do you see what's happening? Well, it's it is a really fascinating moment. Uh, this may have moved on. Uh, even you know, by the time people are listening to this, things may have moved on from where it is as we record now. But it is a perilous moment in what is a very dangerous situation. Has been for some time. I mean, since October seven, uh, there has been this fear of a regional conflict, of a region wide conflict, of enmities that have existed for a long time suddenly being expressed militarily and things becoming very, very badly out of control. Um, and, of course, the major players in the region, uh, Israel and Iran in particular, uh, and America and Britain and, you know, like the, the influence that they've had historically as well are coming into this. Um, and through this we've seen uh, various attempts to make it escalate. We, we see the Houthi uh, rebels uh, out of Yemen launching all these attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, and, and, of course, they, as I say, they have strong backing from Iran. We see that the sort of tensions on Israel's northern border as well with um, with Hezbollah. And they are, they are also funded very substantially by, and much, much bigger than Hamas, as everyone knows, substantially funded and sponsored by Iran. And I think what's been less appreciated is we've seen an incredibly militaristic, combative approach from Israel itself, not just towards Gaza, but to towards its surrounding neighbours, particularly its aggression into uh, southern Lebanon. And the signalling or the messaging that we're seeing from Bibi Netanyahu's, uh, you know, very hardline right-wing government, which seems to have been, um, seems, you know, if you judge it by its actions and indeed by some of the rhetoric, seems to be angling for a more region-wide conflict. There are even some who believe that Netanyahu and his pals would would actually like to drag Iran into this conflict because that would force the US to help Israel deal with Iran once and for all. Now that's an extraordinarily dangerous situation. So when we look at it, at, at you know the, the complexity of this, uh, we see the Qataris and 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 some others uh, trying to play a role, a more constructive role here, uh, trying to broker the deal you were talking about. There's talk of this this potential hostage agreement for the release of some more of the hostages in exchange for a ceasefire of unknown duration. There's said to be constructive noises coming from both sides around this, so it is a possibility. It's obviously not a solution. But this attack on, I think it's called Tower 22, which is a mm. US base right, uh, right on the edge of Jordan and very close to the borders with Iraq and Syria which has been deadly, is one of 180 attacks that have been launched against the US since October 7 by Houthi rebels and, and other uh, Islamist extremist groups sponsored mainly by, by Iran. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and this one is the first one that's actually got through and, um, and, and people have died. And what's really worrying about this is that the US is in an election year 
You've got all these Republicans coming forward, people like Roger Wicker, who's the senior Republican of the Armed Services Committee. He wants to strike Iran and says it must happen straight away. Biden can't be shown, seen to be weak on this. Um, uh, the same with Lindsey Graham, who's a you know a, a very hawkish sort of character. Uh, he's advocating the same. There are a number of Republicans who are saying US has to stand up now. And we see the possibility, therefore, uh, if some people had their way, of the US being dragged into another stupid... escalation. Yeah, and just another war that it, it should not be involved in. Uh, in that region, uh, another Middle Eastern mess, you know, which which is already uh, well out of control, and the US's influence over Israel has been uh, somewhere between nil and pathetic. Um, you know, it provides most of the arms, most of the bombs that are being dropped on Gaza are, are American. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of military aid that's gone to Israel for a long time, and yet the US has very little influence apparently on getting Israel to observe humanitarian um, uh, principles here. So it's yeah, which such is, a, is an ongoing catastrophe. It which is. is deepening every every day. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bleak situation uh, all around, uh, and as I say, there's this pressure on Biden in a critical election year to look strong. And he at this stage and his uh, Lloyd Austin, his defence secretary, are saying we will strike back at, against the rebels, presumably, at a time and, and in a manner of our choosing. That's the sort of language they're using. Um, but as I say, there's pressure on, on this and it seems like the rebels, these, these proxies for Iran, would like to provoke more of a, of a conflict. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very dangerous moment and I think... There'd be a, there'd be a lot of there's growing growing um, division inside Israel as well. You know, people now really really pushing for Netanyahu to be removed and for others more responsible to be put in charge. You know, we have a humanitarian disaster that's been unfolding now for a, for a long time. We've seen the yeah, International now, yeah. Court of Justice uh, ruled just on Friday night, um, late Friday night our time, that uh, Israel needs to uh, take much greater efforts to avoid. Uh, actions which are tantamount to genocide, which you know I think many people can plainly see it is not doing. Um, yeah, no one's got any influence over Israel at the moment, which goes back to your point about um, the international machinery, the architecture that is there that is meant to keep order. And I think it's really interesting also if we look at even um, uh, Keir Starmer, the the head of the Labor Party, who's marching, it seems, towards victory when the election in the UK happens later this year, is somewhere between 20 and 25 points ahead and has been now for about a year. Um, but he did a speech recently where he stopped short of, of backing the idea of ceasefire. It says a ceasefire would effectively freeze the conflict where it is and that wouldn't be to anyone's advantage and it's not realistic. Uh, but there are a lot in the British Labor Party, many more, I think, much more vocal than is the case in the Australian Labor yes, Party. Yes, that's right, yeah. Which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Um, we, we, you know, I, I don't think I've seen a time where Labor, there's a lot of unrest in the Australian community. We see big marches and stuff. And I was thinking, I don't think I've seen a time where Labor is is more kind of removed, as it were, from what you might call the broad left in this country. I, I think part, part of that to do is to do with the, the, the different factional structures in the UK Labor Party. The, you know, the left is obviously still quite um, powerful post-Corbynite and, you know, that was obviously a big mm. issue for Jeremy Corbyn, his stance on Israel, and that caused a lot of grief for the Labor Party and, and that is in some ways why Keir Starmer is – very, very careful. Like not only is he careful for his own internal party reasons, but because the probability of him becoming prime minister is quite high and he, he'll mm. be accountable for these words. But if you look at in Australia, like it's, it's actually factional members from the right that are rep representative of the sort of Palestinian community in general or, or you know, the, the that aligned part of the community. Well, there's uh, some, but yeah. I, I think there's all, I think the, there's the, plenty of, the key there's, plenty one, of there's plenty of pro-Israeli pro ones yeah. on the right as well. Yeah. But it's sort of, I guess that's my point, is that it's actually the conflict is localised within the right. Well, I, I think it's important just to say, though, that when you th if you think about someone like Ed Husick from the right, uh, who's a Western Sydney MP and a minister, he's been very outspoken um, in representing the the Palestinian position and seeking for Palestinian lives to be e equal in value 
in, in the news mediation, I suppose, of this conflict in Australia. And I, I completely understand that. He's a Muslim MP himself. Um, got Anne Ali, who's a Muslim MP, although she's from the left, I think, in Western Australia. Yes. But you've also had Tony Burke, who's from the right, another Western Labor MP, who's uh, been quite outspoken uh, looking for, um, I think, fairer depiction yes, of, yes. Of, of, of the Palestinian position. So that's... That's kind of interesting, but, yes. but there's a lot of right-wing Labor MPs Plenty. whose reflexive position is always Israel, 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 and that you know that I don't think that is helping the Labor Party with in its relationship with the broader left on this question. Now, whether that matters electorally, I think many of them would say it doesn't. But um, I mean, I think I think Labor has taken actually. A- like in general, like a, a quite a context and relatively nuanced approach. I mean, this is a really difficult subject for a political party to manage in general. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think the, I think I think the overall sort of civil peace is actually testament to their overall success. I mean, if you look at the discourse in the UK and some of the you know, um, riots and or, or, or violence at, at um, or claimed violence at protests and, you know, these different narratives and, and, you know, threats from the far right. It does sort of go to show that I think Labor has, has been more successful than other countries. It's not, it's not really like in pure political management terms, right, which is a terrible way to think about what is like a humanitarian crisis that was started by like a catastrophically horrible war crime. Mm. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's, it's not like there's no clean path. No, although you know? I think, and we've said this on, on, in, on this podcast before, the clear path actually is to stand up for human rights. And um, Israel's blanket argument that we are entitled to self-defence you know, is, is put as if it is the answer. Well, no one says you're not entitled to self-defence. The question is how you go about that self-defence. What constitutes self-defence? Does the blanket killing of so many civilians, women and children, innocents uh, in, in, you know, caught up in this, does that come under the umbrella of self-defence? Now, there are many people around the world who are deeply uncomfortable about that, um, and there are Israelis who are uncomfortable about it. There's certainly yeah. people of of, of, um, of Jewish background who are uncomfortable with that. But there are lots of others who aren't who believe that this just this you know that that Israel cannot have Hamas on its border in the way that, that it is. I guess the sort of the point I was trying to make about um, Labor's response in general, I think, has been very like attentive or trying to be attentive to context, right, and trying to be attentive to. Well, basically not to play into this older kind of narrative, you know, around who is deserving and undeserving of, yeah. of human rights, which I think, you know, on one level we could kind of say characterised how these debates might have gone down in the past, right? And I suppose that's sort of what I was trying to sort of say about like the fact that, you know, in many ways there's a concentration of interested parties or people with like direct responsibility, representational responsibility or strong beliefs that that are located all within the one faction is probably helping Labor manage the issue better than when then when it's a much more clear left-right split and you've got very different ideological views, right? You know, the Labor left is pro-Palestinian, the Labor right in the UK is more um Cautious, right? Mm. And I think that was sort of what I was trying to yeah. no, no, to I, say. I agree yeah, with that. yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And that might be one of the reasons why they have been much more disciplined. Well, I think Penny Wong has, uh, as foreign minister, from the left, yeah, yeah and yeah. but has has I think done a very deft job of of articulating of, of sort of uh, standing in the middle and, and articulating a position and. Yeah. Um, and it recognises those realities you just spoke about, and I think um, you know she's enraged people on either side at various points, either with not saying enough or saying too much. But I think you know there's been some uh, there's, there ought to be some recognition of her doing a very difficult job there and and yes. doing it seemingly well. Uh, but I think the US, I don't think you can make the argument that the US has performed well here. I think it is it has been. Um, just more of the same, really, as we've seen for all those peri- all those years when the settlements were happening, illegal settlements in in the occupied territories in the West Bank, um, and 
the US would protest and uh, the Israeli government would say, uh, you know, would, would sort of hear this protest and then just blithely continue on doing it and there was no real sanction, there was no real consequence. And so the US was in a sense just enabling that process and of course there's been an up, up serious upwelling of, of uh, settler violence against Palestinians in the occupied territories since this has been uh, going on as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a powder keg all around. Um, speaking of powder kegs and mm. less deadly ones, happily, uh, let's just have a very quick word on on Nemesis. Ah, Nemesis. <laughs> Nemesis. Yes. Wasn't it uh, interesting? What, what, what was your uh, major take from the ep- episode one of this trilogy about the, 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 the triumvirate yeah. that ran the Liberal government between 2013 and 2022? I actually thought it was very interesting how um, Scott Morrison, even though he didn't get much airtime, in some ways, and this one was very much an opera about Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, was positioned as the critical player, even yeah. so, right? Yeah. The silent fulcrum. Um, and, yes, which I think gives us an idea of where the rest of the series is, is going to go and certainly what people have come to believe about, you know, um, the events. The other, the other thing I actually was really struck by was um, – um, you know, it occurred to me I haven't seen Scott Morrison very much on TV or whatever for a long time because he's not prime minister. And yeah, he he just he looked he looked physically smaller. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I just wondered like, is this the way they've like shot the? He's been in in smallified. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, is it like you know, is it the angles? Is it the way they frame the shots? Um, but it it just it just struck me. Yeah, like someone who has, I suppose lost some of their en- energy i don't know yeah yeah apparently he was in the interview chair for 8 hours scott morrison oh wow 8 hours and still wasn't able to say much no he's um, not very loquacious no well he what he is i mean it what struck me and i agree i'm glad you mentioned morrison as the sort of first thing because what struck me and bear in mind i was reporting frontline on this right through that period and I, what struck me was uh, what I didn't hadn't understood at the time was I don't think I'd understood the depth of the antipathy between uh, Turnbull and Abbott. Uh, mm. You know, I knew they didn't like each other, but um, I guess it was hard to understand just how profound, how deep, how bitter that was, uh, and how intense it was, and sustained right through that period, and how it framed the the, the success and failures of 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 those individuals and the government. Generally, but also, and this was the really, really intriguing thing for me, was the role that Morrison, by implication, seems to have played. So there's always been this doubt about what Morris, how it was that Morrison came through the middle when Dutton challenged Turnbull in 2018, and suddenly Morrison, who hadn't really been a candidate and who two days before had said he's my prime minister, I'm ambitious for him, suddenly Morrison was the prime minister. And the theory was, of course, that some of Morrison's votes had been used to back the spill uh, and and give Dutton's team the impression that they had bigger numbers than they had. And then uh, and then those votes had come back to Morrison so that Morrison would be the prime minister. Now, he's always denied that, but that's 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 what's widely believed. It's what Turnbull believes and what a number of others believe. What I hadn't really understood uh, in the detail that we got last night was how that was also that that had been trialed once already in the empty chair challenge yep. earlier. So when 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 that push came from those two Western Australians for a spill, and no candidate, no alternative candidate came forward against Abbott, and Abbott won the vote, sixty-one votes to thirty-nine. So the empty chair got thirty-nine votes, and Turnbull says in the uh, interview we saw last night that right through that period, he and Morrison, who were Mates, you know, were were sort of um, uh, in in conversation about how badly failing the, the the Abbott prime ministership was, and Turnbull says that essentially Morrison was encouraging Turnbull to run because he knew Turnbull didn't have the numbers, and Turnbull's theory is that Morrison was of the view that if Turnbull ran, it would discredit him. He wouldn't take out Abbott, but it would weaken Abbott enough, and Abbott would be gone within a short period of time, and Morrison would be prime minister. And so we see, we see Turnbull taking the view that this is what, this is the sort of silent partner role. Now, it's backed up by a number of the things that other people said last night. That when they tried to get Morrison's opinion on what was happening as the leadership 
tensions much more you know crystallized and it became very clear with the real challenge that that um, uh, you know Turnbull was in trouble uh, we we get this kind of um, uh, you know, we we can see that Morrison is just he's playing a dead bat. People are going to him and saying, "Where do you stand?" And he's saying, "It was nothing to do with me, right?" Yeah. And yet, it was nothing to do with him except that he emerged as a prime minister. I mean, I think I think it's yeah. I mean, I I wonder if Turnbull's interpretation of exactly what Morrison did in the in the empty chair spill is is exactly correct, or if it is. The most sort of generous is the wrong word, but you know the most sort of congruent with I suppose Turnbull's worldview now, and looking back and reflecting. Yes, yes. That said, though, there's plenty of other people like James McGrath mm. or Erica Betts have no reason to like either man. Mm. Um, that sort of confirms that there's definitely a, there's got to be a degree of truth. Quite a bit, probably. Yeah. Whether it was as um, I suppose brilliantly Machiavellian as Turnbull has cast it, is I think that's a genuinely kind of open to question and it's a bit of a shame that um, Abbott didn't consent to an interview and neither did Alex Hawke, mm. right? Um, neither you know. did the Chancellor of this university. Oh, really? Yes, well, I didn't see Julie Bishop in it either. Oh, that's, yeah, that's right, yeah. exactly, um, though it's, it's, it is possible that she may appear later. Well, um, I, I, but yes, no, I don't know. no, that's that's a uh, yes, and I mean that is a you know I mean especially given the first half hour was really around I suppose establishing Abbott's character and a, and a big theme of that was um, the lack of female voices and yeah, wasn't Julie it the Bishop's, whole thing was so blokey, you know, like yeah, all the all the men's games that were being played right through, particularly in that early period when you've got one female cabinet minister. That's right. I mean, I'd forgotten actually that piece of footage of Abbott saying. It is a shame that I only have one woman in the cabinet. Like he's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But yeah. there are some who are knocking on the door. Yes, I remember yeah, that. They should have been I'm knocking just, yeah. someone out. You know, I mean, um, I, I thought it was actually really interesting that Abbott chose not to participate given he, he's generally always sort of been of the, of the view that, you know, you're better off being mm. part of the narrative rather than ceding it all to yeah. to others um so that's that's an interesting i guess an interesting choice and there was like a you know a, a sort of like an irony or a visual irony when they um presented that information in front of an empty chair because of course we all know mm. that the empty chair spill you know is coming um yeah. so yeah. The other thing, just just very quickly, is because we're we're sort of right out of time now. But I, I very much enjoyed the whole reaction from right across the political spectrum within the coalition. The whole reaction to the knighting of Prince Philip and and all oh, of that, yes, you know, just yes. the the, in, the sort of astonishment and incredulity of of people like, what we're doing? What he did? What? <laughs> what craziness I, is this? I, I still remember that, and I still remember thinking that's <laughs> fake news. That's got to be satire. Well, precisely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd heard uh, I'd heard Christopher Pine's story before. Uh, you know, with the um, expletives in the story. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know, I th thought that was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, just the you know, there were people on the right and the left, and and the progressives or whatever they call themselves. You know, they were all just going, "Oh, you've got to be kidding!" And they were really appalled because of the extent to which it it flew in the face of the very notion of Australia Day, and flew in the face of. Um, uh, you know, popular opinion, like you know, is how tinnied could you get? I mean, it sort of really did convince people. And in fact, I think, um, well, well, it's it's what brought him down, right? Yeah. You well, know? I think those yeah. two West Australians essentially yeah. crystallised their their final decision that this bloke it can't stay there, sort of thing. Yeah. Well, but yeah, but if you think about like like what happens afterwards, right? Like it's, Don Randall, I think it was. Yeah. yeah, Don Randall, who who then passed away later, um, causing a by election, I believe. Um, but if you think about it right, you know, so so people are concerned about Abbott's judgment. Uh, then the the Prince Philip thing happens and everyone feels like this is untenable, mm. it can't go on. Mm. He has that shock from the first um the empty chair spill. Yeah. And then Bronwyn Bishop, you know, he miscalculates. The helicopter there. thing sticks with her even That's though she right. was Unquestionably, the worst speaker I ever saw. Well, I mean, and 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 on one level, right, he's being true to himself because he's got a tremendous sense of loyalty to her. That's actually one of his 
characteristics, right? Loyalty. Mm. He's very loyal. Mm. That's one of the reasons why he never renewed his shadow cabinet and one of the reasons why there was only one woman mm. in the cabinet. Mm. Um, and then there was, of course, the, the gay marriage thing. like Where it, he just stuck doggedly to a position that yes. he could see was unpopular. Yes. And if you think about it, right, like he – and he didn't – and I think the thing that was sort of interesting and, and new was that it became actually really clear that he didn't – he didn't talk to anyone else in the cabinet or anyone else about the realities that this motion was coming. So all these people were blindsided on on yeah, this subject. Yeah, Warren Inch was left sort of hanging, hanging out, out yeah. to dry, and yeah. then they, he blindsided people again by bringing in the in the nationals. And it's 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 it, 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 it <laughs> says stacking. well, it says something about leadership, right? Like, well, it was it was government by student politics, really, in in some ways, you know, those sort of tactics. Y- yes, yeah, very clever procedural mm. um, maneuvers, and like you know, let's face it. We could say that that characterised that that era. Some of them were better at it than than others, but it's the that's not, you know, like that's not actually. Like John Howard didn't always agree with people. He had a lot more authority in the end, right? Was able to essentially get people to accept positions that they didn't like because he he aligned himself with enough of a core voting block in Australia. But he he was able to kind of see where he would need to make hmm. concessions and to offer that kind of leadership. But here, Tony Abbott sort of, I guess, displayed a, a rigidity, you know, his, his personal credo, his personal worldview sort of trumped his stewardship of well, this corporation called the Liberal yeah. Party and yeah, the Australian did. nation. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good point. And, yeah. and one wonders what role partisan media played because there's, you end up with this kind of corrosive and reflexive feedback loop, right, where yeah. you're getting the praise of this, you know, subscription TV mouthpieces and shock jocks and, 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 and much more partisan media than perhaps was the case for most of the period, including most of the Howard period before that. Um, and yeah, and you get PMs that are responding or political figures that are responding to this, and they're going on Sky After Dark and having these conversations and and getting praised for you know how they stuck it to to you know to the woke left or whatever it might be, and um, getting further and further away from the mainstream of Australian opinion, and then you come up with really kooky ideas like knighting the royal family. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's actually a very good point. I hadn't thought of that, and I think that's actually probably very significant. Well, look, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We've talked for much longer than we probably had scheduled, and hopefully we have. And we, you, you, thank you for joining us and staying with us if you are still listening, and if you are, you will have heard that. Yeah, that's, you'll get a golden sausage in the mail. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, the, the uh, fabled golden sausage. Maybe we could make little pins or something. Not a bad idea. Yeah. That is Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, Parliament's back next week and uh, we look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.